Welcome to Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I'm delighted to be joined by Mike Aquilina. Mike Aquilina is the Executive Vice President of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology and is the author of more than 20 books, including The Mass of the Early Christians and Fire of God's Love, 120 Reflections on the Eucharist. He appears regularly on EWTN with Dr. Scott Hahn. With Mike Aquilina, we're going inside the pages of The Mass, The Glory, The Mystery, and The Tradition, co-authored with Cardinal Donald Worrell and published by Doubleday Religion. Welcome, Mike. Welcome, Chris. It is a fantastic, great renewal that the Church will be experiencing with some of the transformations in the vernacular use of the Mass. And here we have an opportunity to really dive into this great celebration maybe we've taken for granted. Oh, I think so. I think so. You know, these things all happen for a providential purpose. And I think that that there has been kind of a, a lack of understanding, a lack of catechesis about the Mass. And it's due to a lot of different things. One is just the, the great changes that went on in the last 40, 50 years, but also just the distractions of everyday life, modern media and that sort of thing. The Mass got lost in the mix somehow. So it's it's good that we're going through this renewal right now. It's kind of forcing our attention on the Mass because a lot of the things that were once familiar to us will now be somewhat new to us. So we get to take a fresh look, a new look, and go a little bit deeper, learn a little bit more. Every action is significant. I mean, everything that takes place has been prepared and planned and given as gift, isn't it? That's it. The, the postures, the gestures, the words, the prayers, the vessels that we use, the tablecloths that we use on the, the altar, all of these things are important. They're significant. And that word is significant because they all have a certain sign value. They're trying to communicate something to us. And that's what the Cardinal Whirl and I were trying to communicate in the book. We're trying to, to look at these things that are visible, try to hear these things that are audible, but then to get behind the mere sensory data and to understand what the tradition is passing down to us. All of these little details of the Mass have been carefully preserved from one generation to the next, many of them since the time of the Apostles. And we have to to look at them and wonder aloud, really, what are our ancestors in the faith trying to tell us about God, about our relationship with God, about our life on earth, and our future life in heaven. But we're trying to get beyond these visible and audible signs and to understand the things that are behind them. You actually take us through step by step, but you also give us, uh, once again, the history, uh, the beginnings that can be found all the way back to the Bible. Well, that's something that's a point of fascination for both Cardinal Whirl and for me. Cardinal Whirl has written a book on the fathers of the church, and I've written one or two on the fathers of the church as well. So we we both have this as a, a kind of fascination. We both have a great appreciation, I think, for what's classic in the Catholic faith. So we did try to go back to the fathers and to give people an understanding of how the early Christians understood the Mass and how they celebrated the Mass, because there is so much evidence in not only the documents of the fathers, but also in the archaeological record. We're really mining a lot of the scholarship that's gone on in the last century or so. But again, that's a point of fascination for both of us. 
Now, just for those who are listening, you do take into account the, the changes that will be occurring Advent 2011 that we'll all be participating in. Yes, we do. We got those as soon as they were hot off the press, and we made sure that we were using those texts and also explaining some of the differences that take place in those texts that people might not be so familiar with in explaining why we do these things the way we do. So it'll be a good guide to the changes that are happening in the Mass, as well as as a guide to what's perennial and unchanging in the Mass. Now, the Mass has many different names. I mean, sometimes people, you know, I'm, I'm going to communion, I'm going to the Eucharist, I'm going to, I'm going to Mass. I mean, what should we bear in mind as we keep, we're talking with others, and even in our own hearts, what we should have about this great celebration? Or sometimes even people call it a sacrifice. I mean, yeah. it's so many things, isn't it? Yes, we we have uh, we actually go through all the different terms and what each of those terms emphasizes. The sacrifice obviously emphasizes the union of the the mass with the um, the sacrifice of our Lord on the cross. The liturgy emphasizes the fact that it's a public work because that's what that word liturgy means in Greek. It means public work. It's the public prayer of the church. The Eucharist, it means thanksgiving, and, uh, and that emphasizes that quality, that quality of gratitude that's kind of built into the Mass, so that each title of the Mass really emphasizes something different about, about the rite itself. So we, we go into each of these, and we examine them in some detail, and we talk about why we have so many different terms and what each of these terms should mean to us. Well, do you mind if I ask why? I mean, I know the book goes very extensively, but why Why is it we have so many different terms? Oh, well, I, that's a, a matter of speculation, I guess. But I'll tell you, it's, it's because it's so common a thing in our life. It's the root and the center of Christian life. It's the source and the summit of Christian life. It's the, the thing that really marks out the Christians. When we go back to the Acts of the Apostles, we see that second chapter where we find that those first Christians devoted themselves to the teaching of the Apostles and the communion, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. So we see that that is the thing that defines a Christian. The cardinal has this phrase he always uses, the Mass is what we do. That's what we do as Catholics. You know, our parish might have a great CCD program. It might have a parochial school. It might run a soup kitchen. It might have the greatest bingo in the history of the church in the United States of America. But the thing we do the essential thing in our parish is not any of those programs. The essential thing in our parish is the Mass, because that's where heaven touches down in our neighborhood, and that's where we're lifted up to heaven. That's where we celebrate that liturgy, that cosmic liturgy that's going on ever since our Lord consummated all history in 30 A.D. That's the beautiful thing about the Mass. And as a result, because it's the most glorious thing in our life, and yet the most common thing in our Christian experience, that's why we have so many different names for it. Because it's the thing at the center of our life. It's the thing that we, we have to have all these terms of endearment for, and all of the names that we apply to it will never exhaust its reality. It's a great Thanksgiving for everything in the cosmos. So it's the Eucharist, the Thanksgiving. It's the great sacrifice that satisfied 
all of the need for sacrifice through all the ages. And so we call it the sacrifice of the Mass, the holy sacrifice. It's the public worship of the Church, the major act of worship in the entire Church, in the entire world. And so we call it the liturgy. All of these things emphasize something different. All of them emphasize something beautiful. And none of those terms will exhaust what we mean by the Holy Mass. Mm. Now, again, everything that happens in the Mass, you chronicle so well in the book and and why we do things in the history of it. And I wish we could hit every point of it, but I I think there are... uh, Several different things, I think, that we could break open for people, and in particular, again, that why we would have bread and wine. Why it, it, I had heard it once, Mike, someone had gotten up and spoken and said, well, if Jesus, if he were here today, he would have used pizza and Pepsi. And I thought, oh, no, I don't know if he'd use pizza and Pepsi because it's a common food. The bread and wine is significant for a reason, isn't it? Well, they are significant for for many reasons. One is they they were common foods in those days. They were substantial foods. You know, they did have festive sense because we find them in all the great festivities of that time. But they're they're not like pizza and Pepsi. They don't have the same connotations. One is they're they're substantial. You know, they are staples in a diet. They're not something frivolous. Uh, The other thing is that when our Lord instituted the Eucharist, He was celebrating it in the context of not a party meal, but a solemn celebration, a solemn liturgical act. What he was doing was celebrating, really, uh, one of the crucial liturgical acts in the life of a Jewish family in the course of any year. It was the Passover meal. And he was celebrating that with two of the elements of any Passover meal, with bread and wine. And he asked us to continue it in that that vein forever. They do have certain significations that go forward to his death. The wine does suggest blood. And wine was even used as a symbol of blood in the Old Testament. Uh, So we find these things and their significance going both directions in history, forward and backward. That when he took bread and wine, it suggested the sacrifice of Melchizedek which we find in the book of Genesis. He is the first character in the Bible to be referred to as a priest. And he was celebrating his liturgy, his thanksgiving in Salem, in Jerusalem. And so we we find our Lord harking back to that. And later on in the New Testament, we'll find our Lord referred to as a priest in the line of Melchizedek, in the according to the order of Melchizedek. So we have all of these resonances going on when he takes bread and when he takes wine. And so it's very important that we remain faithful to those particular signs. And the question has come up at different times in history, well, if we're moving to another culture, should Shouldn't we change the elements to match that culture? And every time the question has come up, the the church has declared no. We must be faithful to those elements, to those signs that were instituted by the Lord himself because of what they evoke in Scripture and what they evoke as just natural symbols as well. He has taken those natural symbols and those historical associations and he has raised them up a level to something that's eternal and something that's supernatural. They are so powerful and they all of these evocations, but only if we remain faithful to them and to what he has established with that first Eucharist at the Last Supper. 
Well, we're talking with Mike Aquilina. He has co-authored a book with Cardinal World of the Washington, D.C. Archdiocese about the Mass. In the first section, you help us to understand not only those symbolic items, uh, great gifts that were established by Jesus Christ as we can find in the scriptures, but also those beautiful symbols that we have in the Mass that have evolved over time, and in particular, whether they're the vestments or the books that we use, and those types of furnishings that we have in the church that are all there for a specific reason and a purpose. We had a lot of fun doing that. We also, one thing I'd also like to point out is that the, the book is illustrated with many photographs, so that you not only read about these things, but you see them as well. When we were first talking about doing the book, uh, Doubleday said that they wanted it to be something like the book that Bishop Fulton Sheen did back in the 1950s called This is the Mass, where it walked through the Mass. It showed photographs of Bishop Sheen celebrating Mass. It also gave kind of a guide to the various elements in the Mass, the words, the gestures, the postures, and the things the vessels, the vestments, and the furnishings as well. So we do provide photographs. We even show a photograph of Cardinal Whirl himself putting on the vestments one by one so that you can see what is the alb and what does it symbolize. Well, it symbolizes the purity of Jesus Christ. When he celebrates Mass, he is celebrating Mass in the person of Jesus Christ. What is the stole? Well, we show a picture of the stole going over the alb. And we explain that the stole is a symbol of the power of Christ, and we explain why. When he brings that rope belt around himself, uh, the cincture, he binds himself with it. We, we see that it's a symbol of the virtues which bind us all, and, uh, bind us all to Christ. So all of these different things that are very common to our experience are trying to tell us something. We don't always understand what they're trying to say, but we want to bring our awareness to that next level so that we can have that clearer understanding. We also look at the various parts of the church that are there during the Mass, the crucifix and why that's there, the tabernacle and why that's there, and so on. What, what these things mean to us, the sacred books, you know, what is each sacred book and what does it mean? Why is it there? The chalice and the ciborium and the various cloths that go down on the table. All of these things can be seen in the book. They also can be understood more clearly because of the explanations that are there. The same thing with the candles that are on the altar, the altar itself. Why is a church constructed the way it is? All of these things have a deep meaning, and we can be brought to a greater understanding. Again, as you pointed out, Chris, because of all these changes that are happening in the Mass, now is the time for us to renew our understanding of these elements and for the Mass as a whole. It's kind of a wake-up call, and it's something that's uh, a moment in time that probably won't be repeated in our lifetime. We want to seize that moment and make the most of it, especially... If we have any kind of a, a position as a catechetical instructor, if we are priests or deacons or CCD teachers or directors of religious education, now is a specific and unrepeatable moment in our lifetime, and we want to make the most of it. I would say that even in, it's a great imperative to the first and primary catechetical instructors, and that's parents those in the domestic church that should have copies of this particular work in 
every Catholic home. Because this way, not only can you instruct your children, but your neighbors, or even yourself, so that, as you said, the Mass is the thing that we do. This is what it is, and this is what we celebrate. And to be able to have this beautiful addition, to be able to do that type of catechetical slash evangelization, I think it's a tremendous gift that you and Cardinal World have provided for us. Well, nothing would make me happier, Chris, and I'm sure nothing would make the Cardinal happier than to, to have this book in every Catholic home. We'd love to see that because really the home is where it begins, where we see that the Mass is important because of our fidelity to the Sunday obligation, because of our fidelity to the communion fast, because of the way we dress for Mass, because of the way we comport ourselves at Mass, because of our demeanor at Mass. All of these things are subjects that we address in the book, and they should be things that are important conversations we have in the home. I hope that our book will feed that kind of conversation in the home so that we'll see a better level of participation in Mass and a respect for what's going on in the sacred liturgy. Oh, I think it really does accomplish that. I mean, you referenced a, a wonderful book that I remember my grandmother had and I ended up receiving upon her death, as well as I have several other copies, that of the Fulton Sheen, This is the Mass, that I pulled out again once the motu proprio from the Holy Father came at allowing the extraordinary form of the Mass, the old, many refer to as the old Latin rite, being able to be offered up once again so freely in the church. That really helped. I mean, this book does that, but times a multitude, only because it's the Mass we celebrate today and will continue to celebrate in the future. Yes, and we do try to make people sensitive to the various forms that the Mass might take and the unity amid all this diversity, that the Mass is the same reality no matter the, the, um, the external form, as long as the form is something that's approved, that's legitimate within the church. So all of those things do, do come through in here. Uh, again, this is something that is, um, is so central to us. It's so important to, to our experience as Catholics that I'm hoping the word will get out. People complain about the funniest things at Mass. You know, they'll complain about the communion fast when the church really isn't asking much. All the church asks is an hour before we receive communion. So most of that hour is taken up by the Mass itself on a Sunday. Uh, so the church is hardly asking anything, and yet you'll find people uh, grumbling even about that. Well, we try to get them to understand, why is it that we have that communion fast? Well, the fast itself is a kind of sacrament. It's an outward sign of our inner hunger for God, so that the first thing that satisfies us, the first thing that, that we take in is Jesus Christ himself. And he says, satisfies that hunger. So if we come to understand why we're doing these things, they're not really things to grumble about, but they're things to, to marvel at. To think, they're, they're things that actually pray in themselves. The Spirit raises them up in us as prayers rather than as reasons for complaints. I'm hoping that, again, we can give that to a new generation and help them to appreciate all that our tradition has, has passed down to us from the time of the apostles. Uh, part two of the book is dedicated to that real close look at what we actually do during the Mass. And I, I would venture to say that 
for most Catholics, we understand, Mike, of course, because we participate so fully in the beginning of the Mass, and we know that it's broken up to the Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist. What I love about this so much is you really examine and help us to understand what happens during that Liturgy of the Eucharist point by point, because there are things that are occurring within that, whether it's the, you know, right after the offertory, the preparation of the gifts, the preface, the sending of the Spirit. Do we know when that moment happens, when Christ becomes truly present within the Eucharist? I mean, so many aspects of that great prayer flows over us so often on Sundays that we're not maybe really in tuned with the actual action. And we should be, shouldn't we? We we absolutely should be because you know there's a certain logic to sacrifice. The 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 points in the liturgy are not arranged in an arbitrary way or even just a, a nice way or an aesthetically pleasing way. They're arranged in a logical way. There's a certain logic to sacrifice. They're also arranged with a certain drama in mind. There's a drama in the sacrifice of the mass, and all of that is. It, it, we're not, we're, we don't understand it if we don't know what's behind the parts of the Mass. If we don't know the deepest Jewish roots of the different parts of the Mass. If we don't know what the Church Fathers were trying to accomplish by, by taking these, these on from the liturgies of the Temple in Jerusalem, of the synagogues throughout the world, and, and, and from, from all of the worship that we find in the Old Testament. The, the liturgies that were, that were, um, that were celebrated in the homes of pious Jews by their families. All of these things were caught up in the great act of worship that we have in the Mass. Well, we can't see that drama unless we know it's there and unless we, we take the time to, to study what's behind it. There's the, the narrative of institution. There's the story of what happened the night before our Lord suffered in that Passover meal. And there's a certain Passover shape to the entire Mass, so that when we celebrate the Mass, we're celebrating the the act that fulfilled the Passover. And it's not just the Last Supper. We're not just recreating it because, you know, we don't match all the details of that Last Supper. We We do it in the way of the Church, the way that our Lord himself said that it should be done from now on. So we're trying to get caught up in that drama and understand what's going on. And even to the point where the host is broken. It's interesting that the host is not broken in the Mass at the point where the, the priest says he broke the bread. It's broken much later on at the rite called the fraction, the breaking of the bread. That's much later in the Mass. Well, it's because at the moment of sacrifice, when we present the victim to God the Father, and the victim is Jesus Christ, he is that unblemished victim, the Passover lamb whose bones are not broken, who is unblemished, who is a pure white. And uh, we raise the victim in that way to the Father, and we offer the Father that way as the Passover lamb was once offered to the Father. Later on, the lamb himself is broken and his blood shed. There's a certain mimicking that's going on in the signs of the Mass. It's mimicking the ancient Passover, following it and tracing its outline in the course of the Mass. It's also tracing the outline of the life of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the drama of his Paschal mystery. It's also tracing the history of the world from beginning to consummation. All of these things are caught up. Those storylines converge 
in the Mass, and they're fulfilled in the Mass. They're consummated in the Mass. We're caught up in that drama. It's not arbitrary. It's not something that's even merely aesthetically pleasing. It's not just a work of art. It's something much more glorious than that. It's something that's made by God. Oh, beautifully said, Mike. I think that we've been tremendously blessed over the last 25, maybe 30 years, where the church has really been imploring us to prepare ourselves for the liturgy of the word. There is a real appreciation and love for scripture, which is just awakening. I mean, it will be an ever-blooming rose that will continue to flourish when it comes to the word. But I wonder if we've had that same type of action, or maybe this is the beginning of it, for the great Eucharistic prayer, for that movement in the liturgy of the Eucharist, because we may not realize it, but many of those prayers, like the preface changes, there's a reason why the church uses certain types of prayers and actions during the liturgy of the Eucharist, during that moment. Again, I I go back that sometimes it just kind of washes over us and we're missing some of them, like you said, the greatest drama that is occurring as the celebrant is offering that great sacrifice. There, there's key movements, key moments that are happening. And, and Pope Benedict has repeatedly called us to educate ourselves in these mysteries, to allow ourselves to be transformed by them, yes, but but also to learn what they're all about, to learn what the signs and symbols mean. He says that, that we should make it so that our interior actions match up to the exterior actions. The exterior actions have a certain richness just by virtue of what they are and by the fact that they've been given to us from the apostles themselves. But we've got to raise our interior dispositions up to those exterior actions. That's what our book, The Mass, is all about. We want to help people get there. And yes, the most important part of the Mass is that part where we're caught up in the sacrifice, the great Eucharistic prayer, the liturgy of the Eucharist. Because of the revision of the lectionary, Catholics are exposed to more of Scripture in the course of a year than any other Christian body on earth. We really do immerse ourselves in scripture. We have on a, on a typical Sunday, we have four readings if you count the psalm, and the psalm is very substantial. So we're exposed to a lot of the scripture. We're caught up in that. We're learning that very well if we're even paying attention and following along in the missal. All of those things are helping us. Now, you're right. We should have that that guidance to help us through to come to a greater understanding of the liturgy of the Eucharist, of the sacrificial aspects of the Eucharist that have perhaps been downplayed in past generations because of ecumenical sensitivities. Well, we have to help all of our of our separated brethren to come to understand this act of worship in its fullness, really, to help help them understand it as it is, as it's been established by Jesus Christ, and to help them to come to that full communion, that full unity, through a greater understanding. Um, That's really what we should be about. If the Mass is what we do, and the Mass is so important to us, we should wish that for everyone, that great act of love that Jesus Christ has given to us. To do otherwise, to hide that lamp under a bushel, would be a terrible thing. It would be a a certain stinginess on our part, and we don't want to be accused of that when we come to our judgment. 
Not at all. I mean, this is that great moment where it, where our heart's not burning within us. Yes, it, yes. Oh, well, Mike Aquilina, thank you so much for being with us, and we look forward to other works that you have just in your great heart that you're willing to share with the rest of us. Well, God willing, I hope to produce a few more. <laughs> with Mike Aquilina, we've been going inside the pages of The Mass, The Glory, The Mystery, and The Tradition, find out more about this book or to pick up a copy, go to www.doubledayreligion.com or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and download this discussion along with many others, go to www.insidethepages.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.